You are listening to Parenting Our Future with certified parent coach, Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in your parenting so you can create the family you always wanted. For more information on my book and other resources, check out yellingcurebook.com. Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's Robin McMahon here. Welcome back to Parenting Our Future. I am here with somebody that is a pretty special person. Her name is Samra Zafar, and uh, oh boy, she has a lot of things to her credit. I'm going to read out all of the amazing things about Samra here. Um, She is an award-winning, internationally renowned speaker, a best-selling author who advocates for human rights, equality, and mental health. Her book, A Good Wife, Escaping the Life I Never Chose, is a bestseller and named among CBC's Best Best Books for 2019 and is soon to be adapted for a TV series by Bell Media. Her work has been extensively featured on global media and her speaking portfolio includes three TED Talks and many leading nonprofit corporations and universities around the world. Her tireless commitment to empower others has earned her the title of one of the top 100 most powerful women in Canada and one of the top 25 Canadian immigrants. Wow, Samra, you are incredible. Thank you so much for being oh, here with me today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm truly honored to be here. Really well, and you, um, the, the reason we're talking today is because we know that right now in this time of quarantine and being, being in close quarters in lockdowns, that domestic abuse is on the rise. And that is that is what you advocate to help for other women because of your own story. And um, I know that you are in the midst right now of some initiatives to help women through this quarantine. And I wonder if we could maybe start there and you could tell us about that. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm truly thrilled to be here. Uh, So glad that you reached out. So some of the things that I am undertaking um, are uh, just, you know, I believe in the in this saying that knowledge is power. And the more knowledge you have, the more awareness you have, the more powerful you feel, and the more autonomy that you have to be able to make some informed, good decisions. So um, that's sort of my mantra. And I have started on this uh, journey to create more knowledge and awareness around domestic violence and why it is so prevalent and why it is on the rise and what can we do about it uh, during this pandemic. And there's a number of reasons why it's rising. Uh, women are being isolated at home with their abusers and isolation is the biggest tool that abusers use to control their victims. And right now that isolation is being handed to them on a silver platter Yeah, because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, you know, the financial abuse kicks in because now the abuser has even more of an excuse to control the purse strings because you can say, well, we're financially not okay. So I need to, you know, pinch pennies and, uh, and we need to, I can't give you this much money anymore. So now women are feeling even more disempowered financially. They're not able to go and see their friends and family uh, or go to a shelter or go to a hotel because of social distancing. Mm -hmm. Um, And shelters are full. They are absolutely completely chock full. Like I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday and she runs a shelter and she said, we're getting 50 times the calls that we normally get. 50. 
Uh, and uh, calls for help, calls for food, calls for not just housing. Housing is just one thing. She's like 30% of our calls are for, for actual housing needs. Um, but the other 70%, it's actually for, I don't have food in the house because my abuser is starving me. I don't have the ability to go out and get anything. I, I'm just feeling completely isolated or, uh, I, I need, like, I'm, I'm in such dire situation that I'm feeling suicidal and I can't go to see my counselor because my abuser will not let me pay for it. Um, these are the kinds of things that are happening and people think, you know, Oh, well, it's not being reported. Well, only a very select cases of domestic violence ever get reported. A lot of these things go under the radar. So even the staff that you see out there of one in three women being affected by intimate partner violence at some point in their lives, that's Canadian stat. It's highly underreported. And right now, due to COVID, that prevalence is higher. The, you know, imagine being stuck at home with an abuser, with this person who's abusive, and they're frustrated and they're, you know, at their wits and they may have lost their job or they are not getting the usual outlets that they would get to take their frustration out. They can't go to the gym and this and that. And guess who's going to become the punching bag? Obviously the victim, right? And, uh, and that's what's happening right now. And because traditional methods of support are no longer available, it's even more important for women to be aware of their rights, of what is out there, who they can call, mm -hmm. uh, what are the different support systems that are available, and also for community members, like people like us who are not in those situations, to be more aware, like what are the signs we should look for in our loved ones? How can we help? It's not, this is not the time to say, oh, this is a family matter, I should stay out of it, because that woman could be dead tomorrow. Oh. Because of what uh, you know, what we, because of our choice to stay out of it. Right. So it's the time to step in, to lean in, mm -hmm. and to help, uh, because the traditional methods of help are not available or not adequate. So what I what I hear you saying is that this is like a perfect storm for these abusers, oh, right? Oh. They they don't have an outlet for their own emotions. Um, th there could most probably be kids at home. And we all know that, you know, kids, younger kids, especially they're tough. Teenagers are tough, right? And that adds extra stress. Um, there's no way to get away from anybody. And so this could heighten the abuse even more um, than it already is. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you're also saying that um, for outsiders, if you're not in that situation, but you think you can, you see someone in that situation, now is not the time to sort of turn the, the other way and say, well, this is a family matter. I won't get involved. This is the time to get involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, this is, it's crucial. It's not, it's not just important. It's essential because essential. this could be in your workplace, somebody, this could be a colleague, this could be a friend, this could be a neighbor, this could be someone in your family. And most people, they want to help, but they are just not aware of how, like, how can we have that conversation? What should we say? What's the right thing? And um, that's why I've started the initiatives that I have. So one, uh, the main thing that I'm doing is on Mondays, I run a domestic violence connection circle. And this is for people to join in. They can join in anonymously to listen. And this is just a way to raise awareness. So the first one that I had uh, was three weeks ago, and that was about uh, raising awareness of why 
domestic violence's writings during the pandemic. Then last week, the session was all about emotional and psychological abuse because that, all, that goes under, under the radar most. Because uh, when you think about domestic violence or abuse, even when you Google it, you see all these images of bruised and battered faces and you think it's all physical. Whereas physical abuse is just the tip of the iceberg. And, it, really? and abuse never, ever starts with a slap or a kick. It starts with those backhanded compliments, those little remarks at your, uh, you know, in, uh, insulting jokes and, uh, and little remarks at your clothing or your dreams and goals and downplaying you and belittling your ambitions and who you are. And it slowly chips away at your confidence. I often describe abuse with this uh, frog analogy. If you put a frog in hot water, the frog will jump out and run away. It has the ability to do that. But if you put the frog in cold water and turn the heat up ever so slightly, the frog will eventually boil to death without even realizing because its body temperature keeps adjusting. And that's how the cycle of abuse progresses. It's very insidious. And it, that's why it's important for people around you to be that radar for you. Like, hey, you don't mm -hmm. act like yourself when you're with this guy. Or there's something off. Like, I didn't like the way this guy was like, putting you down in front of your friends mm. um, and and even ask yourself those questions as well like how how does he make me feel like if there's something in your gut that's saying it's not right then it probably is not right, probably um, not right. Yeah. and as women we've often been conditioned to think that you know um, others around us are, know us better than we know ourselves and it's always a journey we're on so I think it's very important to recognize those signs with yourself and and also give others the tools to how to have that conversation so that was the session last week and then just last night I had a session with two family lawyers and this was all about raising awareness of what are your rights under family law when domestic violence is involved and how do courts look at domestic violence in a, in, a, in a relationship when they're making decisions about custody, access, support, and um, division of property, et cetera. And I had, some, I had a couple of really great uh, family lawyers join us um, from a firm downtown, and, uh, and they, mm. they were very generous with their time and advice and expertise. Um, and you know, I've, got, uh, I've got somebody from a shelter, um, um, my friend who runs the shelter uh, in, in Toronto, and she will uh, join us next week and talk about safety planning. But there's a lot there that a lot of ground to cover. And um, I would encourage people to join and listen. It's completely free. You can encourage and spread the word. It, it's open to anybody worldwide. And I also put up the recordings on YouTube. Um, and uh, so you can watch them there. And I put, I usually what I do is when I put recordings, I put the full episode and then also little clips so that people can, if somebody just wants to learn about how the cycle of abuse works, they can go and watch that piece instead of the whole episode. Um, okay. And so anybody can join those uh Absolutely. like you said all over the world because this show goes all over the world so um, and this this issue is uh is all over the world i'm hearing similar reports from us from uh, europe um there are articles everywhere um about the fact that domestic violence is rising during the pandemic and this will be another pandemic on our hands oh. along with other mental health and, and you know all yeah. that so so it's, it's very important for us to be very proactive about it. Okay, so I will make sure that this domestic violence connection circle that you have is posted. And uh, uh, not only will I post it on my page today, and this is being recorded a week before this even goes out, I'll post this today. Uh, and then we'll, um, we'll, of course, put this in the show notes, but it will not be hard to find it. If you follow me, yep. um, you will find it. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I post about it on my social media as well. My yeah. website is just my name, samrazafar.com. It's posted there. 
But yes, encourage people to join, encourage people to bring their friends um, and watch. And the idea is just to just to spread the awareness and the knowledge out there. Okay. So, so thank you for that. That's, that's really great. And would you mind telling us a little bit about what you've been through in your story and really what brought you here? Um, and I've got so many questions for you. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's how it all started. Right. Um, so I was growing up like, you know, a typical teenager, whatever that looked like. And back in the day in um, the nineties in uh, Abu Dhabi, I'm originally from Pakistan. That's where I was born. And I was in a small town in the United Arab Emirates. I was one of those girls who was like really pushing the envelope and challenging the stereotypes. So when I wasn't allowed to go play cricket with the boys outside anymore, I started the girls cricket team in my school. And then when I was not allowed, uh, when I was told that, you know, girls are not equal, et cetera, I started a school newspaper to share all my gender equality radical ideas. Wow. So uh, <laughs> you were, uh, you were an empowered was- woman. Always a bit of a rebel, definitely. Yeah. Always like challenging why and asking those questions that no one else dared to ask. And, um, and uh, you know, a lot of my friends around me and, friend, and cousins and everybody would dream about their wedding gowns and their bangles that they would wear on their wedding day. Whereas I would think about going to Harvard or Stanford or just getting these amazing degrees and changing the world. And uh, my education was my one and only passion. I was that kid who would be upset about the 1% that I didn't get on a test instead of the 99% that I did get. I was a bit of a perfectionist, which I'm trying to get out of that mold now, but, yes. but um, definitely super, super passionate about my education. That was the one thing that I never, ever wanted to give up on. So when, uh, when I was 16, my mom came into my room one day and she told me that, Samra, there's a marriage proposal for you. And uh, this friend of mine who you've met a few times, her brother lives in Canada and they seem to be a very progressive family. They will allow you to go to school there. You can go to university there. And it's going to be a win-win because it's not like we can send you away to university somewhere. That's even if we could afford it, which we can't. But even if we could, uh, no girl from our family has ever gone abroad to study. That's not something girls do it shameful we worried who's going to take care of you you need a guardian so this way you'll be with your husband we won't be worried and you'll get to go to university abroad and you would you know it would be a win-win sounds and great <laughs> it it was it was delivered to me in that little beautiful package and right. and i was not convinced i kicked and screamed oh, okay. and i said no i don't want to do this and i had nightmares and okay and I, I just was so afraid. I mean, this man I'd never met before who was 11 years older than me. And I was a high school student. And, you know, um, it just seemed bizarre. And then the next thing I know, his parents coming over to our place and his mother is, you know, um, measuring my wrists for bangles and um, other wedding jewelry. And I'm like, I just want to go play with my friends. And I didn't really have much of a choice in that matter. And uh, just after my 17th birthday, I found myself sitting in a big grand banquet hall, decked up in red and gold beside this man who was 11 years older than me. And now he was my husband. And a few months after that, I was shipped off to Canada as his wife once the immigration papers went through. Mm -hmm. So when I came here to Canada, I was still a teenager. I had just uh, completed 
uh, grade. I was in grade 12, uh, so I didn't even have high school. And I became pregnant right away because no one had ever talked to me about birth control. And um, I remember just feeling like in the space of a few months, my entire life changed. You know, I went from a, this empowered high school teenage girl to being now a wife and soon to be a mom and never even finished high school. And then I was told that I couldn't go to school now because I was pregnant. Uh, in fact, one day my husband took me to a local high school in Mississauga where we used to live. And the principal there, she saw me, I was visibly quite pregnant. She saw this much older looking man beside me and she put two and two together and she figured, okay, he's my husband. And she said, you know, honey, um, we don't think you'd be able to fit into the student body here given your situation. So maybe you should look at the, um, look at this number. And she gave me a number to call and that was for the independent earning center. And this is a place where you can call and order your courses and study at home. So when I called them, uh, the person at the other end of the line said, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm 18. And he said, so why aren't you in school right now? And I said, um, it's kind of complicated. He goes, uh, well, most of the kids that are your age who are not in school and are doing their high school through us are kids who are in prison for whatever reason. Oh. And I said, yeah, it's, it's kind of the same situation here. Wow. Because it really felt like that. I was not allowed to go out of the house. I was not allowed to make friends. I couldn't go to school. I couldn't have any independence, a cell phone, uh, any kind of autonomy and freedom. And it was told to me that it was for my own good because I was being protected from the corrupt Western society that spoils women mm -hmm. and makes them too independent, which is a bad thing. And my, and my parents-in-law, so his parents were also living with us. So we were all in a joint family and his and his mother and his mother was very emotionally abusive. And in fact, one day she said to me, you should be grateful that you got to the real purpose of being a girl sooner rather than later and didn't have to go through all that useless education crap. Oh, no. So um, it, it was horrible. The next few years, um, I was being abused and I didn't even know what to call it. I was uh, being called bad words and humiliated and insulted every single day. And whenever I would question why, uh, I would hear, because you deserve it. And when you hear that on a daily basis, you start believing it. And there were times when, yes, the door was open, I could have walked out. But then the questions in my brain was, where do I go? I don't have family in Canada. I don't have money. I don't have an education. I don't have a job. I have a young kid. Um, I have no idea about my rights. Um, I was actually being told that if I left him, I'd be deported because he sponsored me and I would lose my kid because my kid is a citizen and I'm not. And I would, you know, um, um, I would not get custody because I don't have a job or an education. So I had no way of knowing otherwise, right? I didn't have access to any friends, lawyers, family, anybody outside of just those few people. So that's what was told to me and that's what I believed and didn't have any way of, of refuting that. So the next few years were like that and slowly, like I, you know, um, like it happens in, in these cases, the emotional and verbal abuse turned to physical, the bruises on my body turned to visible bruises instead of the bruises on my soul. 
and uh, it just became more and more dangerous. And during all that time, though, I, again, that voice in my head was, I want to go to school. Mm. I want to get an education. I can't give up on that. I, I, I was ready to give up on everything and obey him and every, everything, but I just could not give up on school. Mm. And so I ended up ordering those courses through the independent learning center and all day I would do my chores. I would be that perfect wife and mother and daughter-in-law as perfect as I could be because I always fell short, <laughs> but whatever I needed to do, I would do. And then at night I would go into my room and study. And I was given permission to take those high school courses from home because I wasn't going out like shameless women do. So I could do it from home. And it took me a few years to finish my six high school credits that I needed. Yeah. Then I applied to university. I got into U of T in York. Um, and I was then told there's no useless money to waste on your silly little hobbies. And I couldn't get OSAP. OSAP is the government um, funding for students. I couldn't get that because they look at household income and his income was above the threshold. So I called OSAP and I said, you know, I'm not getting money. They're like, well, you're married. So that's your family decision. It's not a family decision. It's I'm not involved in that decision. Well, if you were separated, you'd be eligible, but I can't be separated until I go to school. Like it's, you know, there are so many loopholes in the systems that just work against women. So yeah. I, I couldn't go to school then. Then I knew that if I wanted to go to university, I had to uh, pay for it myself. But going out of the job, house and getting a job is a big no-no. So then I discovered the ability to make money from home by babysitting. And this was actually so random because I was going out, I was out to grocery shopping with my mother-in-law. And you know how when you get out of um, the checkout lanes and there are usually these big community boards and people yeah. have like, ads on there to sell a couch or sell a TV and stuff. So somebody had put an ad there to, uh, for babysitting services. And I was like, really, people can make money out of this? And I'm like, I can do that. And by that time, I had two children on my own. So I started a home-based daycare. And I was given permission from him and his family to do that because I was staying at home. As long as I was at home, I had, you know, I, I had, I, I could do some things. And so I started a babysitting service. I started advertising on Kijiji. It was just starting out. And this was like 2005, 2006. And sooner, I, sooner, uh, you know, uh, sooner or later, I was, I was able to build uh, a bit of a clientele. And um, I was making good money, um, you know, a few thousand dollars a month and most of it would be taken away from me and put towards the household expenses, but I would still stash away a few hundred bucks here and there on the side every month. And then eventually uh, a few years later, I had that little nest egg of like 3000 or so saved up for my first year tuition fee, plus uh, a little bit extra for babysitting for my younger daughter. And uh, that's when I put my foot down and I said, I'm going to university. And I was given permission to take one course very reluctantly though uh, but I had some leverage by then because I was making money and I was able to say well if you don't allow me to go to university I'm not I'm not going to run the daycare anymore and they were used to the additional income coming in so I was given permission to take one course and very strict instructions that do not talk to anyone don't make any friends at school don't raise your hand in class in other words be invisible yeah. And I would be like, I didn't want to jeopardize my chances of going to school. In fact, I thought that he had spies on campus who are watching me and will report back to him. So I was so paranoid and I would just be on my 
absolute best behavior. I'll go to class, take my notes, come back home, study, and then, you know, do my exam. But slowly but surely, I felt myself opening up. My confidence started to increase. I was pulling straight A's in all the tests, and people wanted to be my friends and study with me and uh, be my, just hang out with me. Hey, do you want to grab coffee tomorrow? Let's go to the uh, student pub and grab chicken wings. It's half price on Tuesdays. And it, it was amazing. You know, I, I was being treated for, with respect and kindness for the very first time in my life oh. for the very things that I was being ridiculed at home for. My intelligence, my brains, my ambitions, my goals, whatever made me who I am. That must have been and so, was that confusing for you? Was it that... was very confusing. Yeah. It was like, it was like, okay, who am I? Am I this rock star that everybody at school seems to think I am? Or am I this scum at the bottom of a shoe? Because that's how I was being treated at home. And I, and I was just really confused during those days. And one day as I was walking to the campus bookstore, I came across a sign that had a bunch of questions on it. It said, do you feel intimidated? Do you feel like you've lost your voice? Like you can't go on, like you're living in fear and walking on eggshells. And I answered yes to all of those questions. He said, come in and make an appointment. That was a very big turning point in my life. It was the first time I was able to talk to somebody outside of his family and my family. Because everybody there in my family and his family told me that it was my fault and I needed to do better. And um, I, I was the one who, who was upsetting him or not being good enough as a wife or as a mother or as a daughter-in-law. So this was my chance to talk to somebody outside of all of that. And I went in and I made an appointment. This was the Health and Counseling Center um, at the University of Toronto in Mississauga. And uh, I was sitting across from my counselor a few days afterwards and the floodgates opened and I was like, can you please tell me what's wrong with me? Can you tell me what is it that, what is that secret to being a good wife that keeps eluding me? Why do I keep messing up? I just, I just want to do better. I just want to, um, you know, maybe if I cook better food or wash better clothes or keep the baby quieter at night or not talk too much or not have opinions or not express opinions and this will get better. And if it is supposed to be this way, because that's what everybody tells me. And if this is normal, then why am I not okay with it? Why doesn't it feel normal? Yeah. And this is the first time anyone ever said to me, Samra, it's not your fault. No matter what you do, you do not deserve to be abused. No one does. And this is the first time I heard the word abuse. Mm -hmm. And like I said, you know, knowledge is power and going to counseling and learning about my rights, the cycle of abuse and how it works and what is in my control, what is not. And this isn't indeed my fault. I do deserve better. All that knowledge is what ultimately gave me the power to be able to leave. It still took a while. I started to fight back, which made the abuse a lot worse because abusers, they want control. And when they feel they're losing it, they lash out. And it got to a point where he was one day about to kill me. And that's when I knew that I had to leave for the sake of myself and more importantly, for the sake of my girls. Mm. So I was in my second year of undergrad when I left. Uh, it wasn't easy. I had to, I had no money and no friends, uh, at least not close friends. So I packed all my stuff in garbage bags and I um, took a few trips in my minivan to move everything over to that little housing, uh, little campus housing apartment that U of T gave me. And um, I was um, broke. Um, there was a point when I was on the verge of homelessness before UFT gave me that apartment. But, you know, it was shabby. It was small. It was tiny. And it was 
uh, it had the ugliest looking green carpet. <laughs> it was literally a two <laughs> bedroom little <laughs> two a, two bedroom little thing on on campus, but it was mine, and it was the first time I I felt safe at home, and I could wake up when I wanted, or cook when I wanted, and have friends over, and just have friends in the first place, and it was liberating. And yeah, those days were tough. I was there was for a year. I was working five minimum wage jobs on campus. Um, part-time gigs like I was a TA I was an RA I was working at the student office uh, uh, and I was also working night shifts at the um, to sell bus tickets and things to students I was working at the office of the dean and I was running a small catering business from my apartment so I figured out a good way to make money was to sell homemade butter chicken to students <laughs> so I started to you do have that your, kids, your daughter and I had my kids and I had full-time university gosh Samra that is so but I was just like determined and there were days when I felt like I can't do this this is hard but I was like no I gotta take it one step one day at a time Wow. And and then two years later, uh, I graduated and I was named the top student in the entire university, three campuses combined. I won 17 wow. awards and scholarships. Wow. Um, <laughs> and there was this one big scholarship at UFT, which is called the Moss Award. Um, it goes to one person annually from all three campuses together. Um, it's about 17,000 or so towards your uh, graduate school. So I won that in 2013. And when I got all that recognition, um, that I'd never really hoped for. I was sort of like, I just need to get a degree and get a decent job and be able to put a roof over my children's head and food on the table for them. But here I was with all this amazing recognition, you know, little community media outlets wanting to interview me and because I was the big scholarship winner and the top right. student of the year and all of that. But that was um, part of the story, right? <laughs> and I was just like feeling like, you know, yeah, initially I was like, yeah, my life is great. I'm going to do this and that. And I just felt like hollow. I'm like, here I have this platform. I know that this isn't just my story. I knew by then that this was the story of millions and millions of women and girls around the world, including here in Canada. And so I just, by then you knew, by then you knew. I, by then I knew. I had been to counseling enough and I'd read enough about all of this. And I just felt like I had to speak up. I just couldn't stay quiet. So I shared my story. The first time I, it went live was in a little blog that went viral. And this was in 2013. And uh, I got my, it actually got published on my convocation day and I got my degree in the morning, came home. Uh, already I was so emotional because I just, you know, I just received my degree, something that I've waited for for years and years. In fact, in, in those, a child in, the, in those early years of marriage, when there was no hope of ever being able to school, I uh, go to school, I would often stand in front of a mirror with a piece of paper rolled up in my hand, like a fake degree and practice my graduation speech and now incredible. and now I got that so it was so it was such a powerful day and then I came home and I logged into my Facebook and it is flooded with messages from all over the world thousands and thousands of people writing to me about how my story impacted them how the, you know it empowered them to change their lives and men and women like you know from everywhere it was just amazing and i started to mentor some local women uh who would reach out to me have coffees and and i saw that how human connection helped them to change their lives and it it was like i found my calling i found you know i often say that i used to wonder why all this happened to me like why did i go through all that abuse and then why did i come out with so much success and that day i found my why i found the answer to my why and um 
I knew that this is, this is something that I have to keep doing. And so this was like 2013, so seven years ago. And here we are today, like it's just snowballed from blogs to little community speeches to now worldwide speaking on a lot of different topics. Not, you know, uh, it started with my story, but I've been able to transition into a lot of work in human rights and mental health and education sector. Um, and uh, and uh, a book, which is being made into a TV series and a second book on the way soon, hopefully. Uh, but the ultimately, you know, the why remains the same as it was on that first day in that I shared my story in 2013, that maybe there is one more life I can touch. Maybe there's someone in the audience who I can help with my message and my voice. Maybe someone can reclaim their voice because of me speaking up. Um, and, you know, the proof points are there. Like a man wrote to me after I published an article three years ago, and he said, my, I have a 17-year-old daughter and our wedding is fixed for next month. I have decided to cancel her wedding and send her to school. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, there two girls from Kashmir, India, because my book just got published in India. My book was in their school library. They read my book and they sent me a handwritten letter and uh, telling me how my story impacted them. And then I recorded a little video message and sent it to them. And then they responded with their own video messages. And I just like, every time I'm ever in a moment of self-doubt, all I have to do is, <laughs> is listen to those and watch those because, you know, the most powerful thing they said that I believe now in my choice because I read your book. And that is, those are my proof points. Those are the things that keep me going. So uh, whether it's little, a little speech in, in you know, a neighborhood in Mississauga or speaking for UNICEF, it's, it's the same, wow. um, the purpose is the same. And, uh, and that's, that's, why, that's why I'm here. You know, when you, when you find out, I, I believe in that Mark Twain quote that two most important days of your life, the day you were born and the day you find out why. Oh. And, um, and when you find out your why, like you just, and you put all your energies towards it, the universe just works with you mm. to make it happen and, and you're unstoppable. So oh, I feel very privileged to be able to do this work. <laughs> you are currently listening to the Parenting Our Future podcast. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this. Please don't forget to subscribe. And I would be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating on iTunes. If you're a parent who's struggling and you feel like you might need some support to be the confident leader of your family where you can calmly respond to any kind of behavior, disrespect, or your kids not listening to you, well, I have a membership group that you might be interested in. All you have to do is go to kamomsclub.com for more information. That's kamomsclub.com for more information. Now, back to the show. Well, thank you for all of that. Oh my gosh, your story is incredible, inspiring. I, I almost even heard you get a little emotional now and it's 10 years ago that you that you left, right? And have been away from your ex-husband. And, um, you know, one of the things you and I, th there's a few things that I wanted to talk about. Uh, you know, one is um, the kids. And, and, and what's, you know, what, what are the impacts to our children and your children when they see this violence, right? Um, it's got to have a massive impact on our kids. Absolutely. The, 
the amount of times women reach out to me and say I'm staying with him because of the kids and I because I want to give the children or my children a two-parent family the right kind of family I just always say don't stay for the sake of your kids leave for the sake of your kids Mm. kids are much better off with two separated parents and not being exposed to abuse abuse is not something that kids just witness they experience it like it's happening to them and my children you know this is where I get choked up but my older daughter was diagnosed with complex PTSD three years ago because of the abuse that she saw as a kid she was nine or ten when I left the marriage but you know the the abuse that she saw the moments that she saw him yelling at me and screaming at me or hitting me and I thought those were things happening to me and she was just you know an observer or a bystander and she probably doesn't remember and we were fine like I left I left the marriage when when she was 10 and when she was 15 or 16 I think I discovered how that she was cutting herself she was self-harming uh she was suicidal uh she was in such trauma and I couldn't understand why and then I started reading books on this stuff on child psychology and how trauma, childhood trauma affects um, kids much later in life. And it just became so clear to me what she had been through. And I'll give a couple of examples to drive home the point. Okay. There was a time when she was six or seven years old and she came to me and I was cooking in the kitchen and her father was watching TV um, in, the, in the living room. And she came to me and said, mom, is daddy in a good mood? Can I go give him this card I made for him? Um, Do you think he'll yell or do you think he'll be nice to me? So think about it. This is a kid already who's walking on eggshells. She's already living in fear. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, he looks like he's fine. You can go give it to him. I think he's okay. But lo and behold, he wasn't in a good mood. He did not want to be disturbed. So as soon as she went, he threw the card to the side and he started yelling at me that, you know, can't you keep her away? Like, I'm just trying to have a peaceful moment here. And the moment I come home, like you just, you know, you just deposit her onto me. And he started to say all these profanities towards me. I start crying. I pick my daughter up and I go into my bedroom in the basement. Now, I remember this incident as one of so many that happened over the course of my marriage. And I remember this incident as something that happened to me. Like he abused me again. He verbally assaulted me again. Right. Me, right. Like she was sort of the, the bystander, you know, that little side on periphery, like not quite. Yeah. Yeah. So last year when my daughter was 18, so now we're talking 12 years later, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, she and I were out at dinner and uh, we were having our favorite, um, what are those, the cheddar bay biscuits at Red Lobster. (laughs) And, and, you know, we were talking about my book and stuff and she's like, mom, um, uh, you know, there's, there's some, there's a memory that, that has been bugging me for a few days and I just want to talk to you about it. And I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And she's like, yeah, I think it was like six or seven and, I had made a card for dad and I gave it to him and he didn't want to be disturbed. So he started yelling at you and he started to say horrible and mean things to you. Um, And I instantly remembered what she was talking about. And she's like, I just want to say, mom, I'm really, really sorry. 
oh, I'm really sorry that I made him angry with you. And I'm really sorry that I did that to you. And I swear, Robert, my heart just broke. Oh, it like, you know, here's like, a, she, she'd been carrying this blame and shame in her that never belonged to her. Yeah. It was never her fault. And she'd been carrying this guilt. But I'm sorry, mom, that I couldn't protect you. But that's what kids do. They, yeah. they will make it somehow their fault. They do. And that's natural. And you can't stop it. And, you know, she's the one who said to me, like, she's doing a lot better now. And she is, it, you know, there was a time two years ago when I thought she'd never finish high school. I had to pull her out of high school because she was having panic attacks at school. And then she was being bullied for that. And she just wasn't getting the support that she needed. I had to pull her out. She went to alternative school. And there were times when I thought she, she wouldn't even finish it. And today, in September, she's starting uh, university in her favorite program. And she's studying filmmaking. And she wants to make films about mental health. And she's in a much, much better place. And we are too as a family. But it's taken... a uh, a, a very painful and excruciating journey for all of us mm. to deal with that. Like, you know, there was a time when two years ago, I would literally have my phone in my hand all day because I wouldn't know when I would get a call from the school or the police oh, or her, yeah. like where she is on what she's doing. And, and that and, did that, did that re-injure you again? Like absolutely it, did. it brought like a lot of my trauma back and guilt. Yeah. Like, why didn't I leave sooner? Like, why did I not, why did I not protect my child? I wish she hadn't had to see all that. And I did the best I could at that time. I didn't know that I could leave. I didn't know that I had rights. Right. So I just worked with what I had, but like in hindsight, you hindsight 2020. And I was just like, I wish I'd, I would have left sooner. I wish I'd just run away or something, or, you know, at least my child wouldn't have been exposed to that. So the only regret I have ever is that I wish I could have just left sooner. And yeah. that's what I tell other people. And it was a very excruciating journey. In fact, um, it was a very enlightening journey as well because I had to completely reinvent myself as a parent. Uh, yes. you know, yeah. I didn't have very strong role models as, my, as parents. My own parents I mean, are told you what they did to me. And, um, and I didn't you know, have, I didn't even know what validation means. I didn't even know, you know what... Uh, what my child's going through and how to help her through that. But I learned. I put myself into therapy. I went into parenting training sessions. I read books and devoured all this material like crazy. And uh, she and I went through a joint therapy program for eight months um, on uh, dialectic behavior therapy, which really, really helped the both of us learn skills on how to be there for each other, communicate. And that's, that is what completely changed us and brought us back together because mm -hmm. there was a time when she didn't want to see my face because I became her safe place I was her punching bag you know she was testing me with all kinds of behavior stuff uh, that was absolutely wrong and inappropriate she would say horribly mean things to me like one day she said what's the what's the difference between you and dad what have you done for me anyway and and oh can you imagine God. like you know I I just I just tore apart but I but I had to keep my feelings aside and think this isn't about me this is about her trauma and I'm her safe space and she needs to let this out and, I, and, I, and, and I yeah 
that takes a lot of strength, a lot of courage. It clearly and when you had she, some counseling and you had I did, work. absolutely. And when she said that and I was able to then, you know, know that she's testing me because she's like, well, if, you're, if I'm so horrible, then why don't you abandon me just like dad did? So oh, wow. he never, you know, so there were a lot of layers there that we had to work through. And I had, and I went through that journey with her. So by the time we were towards the end of our uh, group therapy um, sessions, and, you know, it was like an eight month program, I think we were in month six or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, there was a time when we were in the group and there were other parents and their teams there as well, because this was a skill building workshop. And uh, she had a panic attack in the group and she got up and she went out and she sat in the middle of the street and I went out with her and she was clearly in distress. I went out behind her and I said, what are you doing? She's like, I don't want to live anymore. I don't like this. I I can't, I hate myself. I just can't handle this anymore. You're better off without me. If I was never born, you could have left out a lot sooner. Just leave me alone and your life will be so much easier. And she's like, you know, just saying all these things. And um, instead of, you know, which I might have done, let's say this incident had happened three years ago, I might have been like, get up, this is so embarrassing, you're sitting in the middle of the street, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew that this moment was not about me solving her problem, this moment was about holding space. And mm-hmm. that's what empathy is about. That's what I've learned through all this, all the, uh, all the sessions I've been through, that I sat in the middle of the street with her, and I just held her hand. And I said, can I just sit here with you? I just don't want to leave you alone. And she said, you're going to sit here with me in your corporate dress and four inch heels. I said, yes, I will. Because you're important to me and I love you. And we can sit here for as long as you want. I just want to hold your hand. Can I do that, please? And she said, okay. And in two minutes, she sobbed like a baby, Mm -hmm. got back up, wiped her tears and said, okay, mom, let's go back inside. Thank you for not leaving me. Wow. And we went inside and we finished the rest of the session with our hands held under the table. Oh. And in that moment, I learned that that's what love is. That's what empathy oh. is. And that's what validation is. You know, that must have be been there. a defining moment for her too. It was, it was for both of us. Um, and it's both. so easy to dismiss it and say, can you just like get up off the street at least? But yeah for you to meet her where she is. And you say now that that's a cornerstone of your parenting now is to use yeah. empathy and Absolutely. you're making me cry by the way, um, but to use <laughs> empathy and validation. And that's what I say all the time. And so it's so nice to, um, in, a, in, a, in a situation as horrible as this, to, to, to say that it also works there too. It, as big as the problem is just saying, Hey, like I see you, I feel you, I'm here for you. And, and holding space means you just meet somebody where they are. You're not talking her out of it. You're not trying to make her go. You don't go into solve problem solving mode. That's no. not what this is about. And people don't need you to solve their problems. They need you to no. feel what they're feeling so that you can, you can say, Hey, I get you. And when somebody really gets you, that feels like love. That's what love is. And that is, that is one of the most beautiful stories I've heard. You know, she is so lucky to have you. And I'm lucky to have her, you know, that's what my next book is. She and I are now co-writing the book on this journey. I think that it's easy to, it would be easy to, um, fall back into despair for you fall back into why and why me and you know and and let it consume you again um 
but instead this is also her story you know this is part of who she is and you see that as painful as this was uh she now wants to dedicate her life to making film and to making film about mental illness which is something that is so important and so needed you know so that to me is a really beautiful story oh she's she's such a gem and you know she's now she is absolutely by far the strongest person that I know. Uh, she's so resilient. And one day she said to me, uh, mom, uh, in fact, I was having a rough moment a couple, a couple of weeks ago because of this whole quarantine. It was re-triggering some trauma for yeah, me. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. And, and she came up to me and she's like, mom, you never move on from trauma. You move on with it. Um, so there's a mic drop up. moment. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So she's, she's, she's quite something. And wow. we're always, we're always there for each other in a, in a lot of ways. And that doesn't mean that, you know, our relationship's perfect. There's no relationship is we go through our ups and downs, but we, we just know that we've got each other's backs, no matter what. She knows that I've got her back and uh, I know she has. And, and that's how we, we operate as a family with my, with my younger daughter. Like, you know, she was, um, uh, you know, she has her little moments and everything. And this whole journey was hard on her because I, my entire in, attention was focused on my older daughter. So, you know, my younger one felt a little bit neglected and, yes. and we had to work through some of that. Um, but, you know, we are, uh, my younger daughter has, has termed our little family as power girls. <laughs> so we are power girls and we, oh. we power and push each other through. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really the, the most beautiful relationships of my oh, life. <laughs> well, that is so, I mean, that is so amazing. And um, one of the things that, um, that you and I were talking about before we started is how this quarantine is doing a couple of different things. One is it's, it's actually re, uh, re-traumatizing women because they are feeling like this is familiar. This is the quarantine. This is the isolation, be, not being able to see people, uh, right. And, and, and carry on in a normal way. So it's impacting them in, in terms of re-injuring them, but also you are seeing women because of the loneliness and the isolation reaching back out to their abusers. Yeah. It's, uh, it's happening quite a bit. In fact, there were a number of articles that I read last week about this whole uh, issue because, you know, when you move on from, let's say, a healthy relationship, right? Like you, we broke up for some reason. Maybe you guys were moving away from each other or had different goals. There's respect there, right? There's, there's like, yes, you know, I really care about you as a person, but this isn't just, this just isn't working for this and this reason. So we should part ways. You're hurt. Yeah. You miss that person and all, but you don't feel rejected. You don't feel mm-hmm. torn apart. Whereas when you go through a toxic and abusive relationship, and, you know, if somebody doesn't know about it, they'd be like, oh, that must, have, that must be even easier to, because he was an asshole. You can get over him quickly. Yeah. But no, yeah. that doesn't work that way because you have been broken down. You have been the frog in that water, the heating water for a while. You are vulnerable. And the way the emotions work for toxic relationships are very similar to how addiction works because even though you know it's bad for you, the high that you get from the good moments, because there are good moments in, in abusive relationships. And the good moments are those, the, they're full of that romance and drama that you see on TV. 
you know, so that's kind of what it feels like. It feels like this big high, that rush of dopamine that you get when this person, I can totally you know, buys you these flowers and takes you out on this amazing fancy date and pulls, pulls out all the stops to make you feel on top of the world. And, you know, even though the, the day before he treated you like garbage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you get that spike and, and that chemical addiction, like it literally feels like an addiction. So when you are getting over that toxic person or that abusive ex, it is, you know, that craving comes, you know, oh my God, he, he treated me like a queen that day. He was, Mm. you know, he was just so wonderful. How can I leave him? And you want to reach out back. So this is just under normal circumstances, right? Like if there's no quarantine going on. So Mm. now you add on to, so it's already so hard. And that's why women actually on average, women, a woman would go back seven times to her abuser Whoa, seven times finally leaves yeah and that's a that's a research uh, statistic and this is average so it could be a lot more times and sometimes women just keep going back and they're never able to finally leave i myself went left five times and oh. i was i i was either went uh, sent back or i went back before i was finally able to leave so that's why having that community support is is very very important mm-hmm. um but now you add on that phase with the quarantine right so now not only are you getting those, uh, you know, chemical cravings um, and that urges to go back, but you're also feeling um, isolated. You're also not have your usual coping mechanisms of maybe traveling or going out with friends and going for a movie and things to Mm -hmm. keep you busy and happy and distract yourself. You're stuck with your emotions. You're stuck with your feelings Mm. and you feel overwhelmed and you want to go and be with someone you want someone's arms around you you're feeling lonely and you want to be you know you want to go back to your comfort zone we're all humans it's very natural so in, you got to be just more disciplined and more vigilant uh, to stop yourself on acting from those feelings mm-hmm. and so feelings are not in our control but our actions are mm-hmm. and that's where your power lies so you got to choose not to act on that feeling. And it's hard. Like even it's been 10 years for me. And I had a few rough days a couple of weeks ago um, when, you know, because again, you know, the, the last time that I was isolated and not allowed to go out of the house and meet my friends and all of that was when I was in an abusive marriage. Mm-hmm. So even though logically I know that these are completely different situations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm safe in my beautiful home with my girls. Yes. Right. I know. But the the last time I felt this way was when I was in an abusive marriage. So it brought up some of those emotions back. And I was like, what on earth is going on? Like, why am I having these flashbacks from my marriage? Like, you know, or why am I feeling these, these, um, like, like, for example, like I was cooking in the kitchen uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago and my daughter accidentally slammed the door and I just jumped out of my skin because that's what my ex-husband used to do. Every time he was frustrated, he would slam doors of the bathroom or the, or, or, or the room or something. And as soon as I would hear door slam, like it would, it would make me, oh shit, he's in a bad mood and something's brewing in his head. And I knew that an abusive episode would happen. So mm-hmm. that was out of my little radar. And, and my daughter did, and I just started yelling at her. I'm like, don't do that. Like, and, like yeah, what's happening? Wow. You know, and I had to like literally pause and I'm like, oh my God, like I need to address this. So I quickly booked a phone session with my therapist and we talked through this and, and I, and he said that this is very natural because the last time you were isolated, 
was when you were abused. So it's re-triggering some of those feelings and some of that trauma. Well, and the reality is, is none of us knew that we would ever be in a situation like this where we'd be quarantined or locked down or whatever, like no matter what your experience in life is, but then you have these women who have left these abusive relationships and it's got to come out of nowhere. Like, I'm sure there's so many women thinking like, what is going on? And, and look, you know, you're triggered when your reaction to something is way bigger than the actual issue itself, right? When you have a massive reaction to something small, that is a trigger. And you said something too, you know, that you don't move on without the trauma, you move on with it. Uh, And and the feelings that you feel and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, and questioning it. And I would also say that, you know, yes, you can't control the emotions, um, but you can control your action. You can also control the thoughts that you have about it and uh, the story that you may be telling yourself too. So I would question your thoughts as well, right? Because our thoughts are powerful and they create our reality too. So that's a really important piece too. Oh, wow. Um, So, so can you tell me just, just as we, as we end here, just a couple of things, what are some coping mechanisms for women right now who are in the relationship right now that, and they may need some help or struggling or, you know, what, what do they do? I think the first step is to reach out to wherever you can. So yes, even though you may not have the traditional, um, go to your friend's house and make a call kind of a situation, mm-hmm. but you know, there are resources online and depending on your situation, I know that in some cases there are, um, women are just, they don't even have the autonomy to be able to go on, have a phone or have access to the internet. I certainly was in a situation where my husband had spyware on the internet in the house and I, and everything I searched, he would be able to see. Oh my gosh. So, so it's not safe, but, uh, I, it's very important for, people like us in the community to be able to just do check-ins. So uh, call that friend of yours who you might be suspecting is going Mm -hmm. through something like this and just offer some help or offer some resources. Canadian Women's Foundation, uh, please go to the website. They have come out with these hand signals. So if you're having a Zoom chat with somebody and if you make that signal with your hand, I think it's like that then that means you're telling that person to call the police for you. So that's a that's fist holding up your yeah, fist. That and that. I think it's that, but, but okay. don't quote me on it, but take a look at the Canadian women's. Account. That is genius. That's genius. Uh, you can make your own signals uh, with, uh, with your friends, Canadian women's foundation. And, and we can, what, what I'll do is I'll put all of these in the show notes as well. And, and clearly you and I are both Canadian, the listeners here from all around the world. And, and you do have some reason. The U.S. domestic violence uh, hotline is, uh, is also, do, yes, it's, it's, it's like that. So it's like that and that. Okay. So if I'm doing that in front of you. Yes, yeah, so you're uh, holding your thumb that, and putting yeah, your fingers on it to make a fist. Yeah, we're so, also if you're if you're listening to this episode as a as a, a traditional um, podcast, you won't obviously see our hands. You can always see it on YouTube. That's where I also broadcast this episode. Um, but I'll I'll find a way to to show you what those hand signals are. Uh, and and I'm sure Samra, you have um, that information. We'll, we'll we'll provide all those links. So you so can just Google Canadian Women's Foundation hand signals. Signal, go on to Google Images as the first result that pops up. It's, it's just facing your palm towards the camera, 
putting your thumb inside your palm and then closing it like a fist. So basically yeah. you're trapping, trapping your thumb in your fist. <laughs> yeah. That's what you're doing. Um, so um, that's the signal, but you can make your own signals. For example, a friend of mine, she put out on her Facebook that if any of my friends or anyone, any woman is going through, um, is in danger and it needs help, then just send me a private message asking for hair cutting services. Um, and that way I will know that, um, I need to call the police for you. Wow. Um, so those are, those are cases where there's violence and danger. Uh, but then there are so many, cause domestic violence is a spectrum, right? So there's that extreme case, but then there's much, much more in the middle, which are emotional abuse. And it happens once in a while, like, you know, in my marriage, for example, yeah, the, the life threatening abuse was way towards the end of the marriage but for the most part it was all that name calling and verbal and emotional thinking throwing things at me and once in a while hitting mm -hmm. um, and if that's going on uh, you know there are resources available there are hotlines available in Canada assaulted women's helpline um, is the go-to I used to call them all the time mm -hmm. and even for survivors if let's say you're having those triggering feelings Mm -hmm. uh, call assaulted women's helpline. I called them two weeks ago and uh, was able to talk to somebody. They're very, very kind, very informative, and they can then guide you to resources uh, in the community as well. And they can help you with safety planning and things. Um, a lot of shelters, even though they are full in terms of housing, they're offering peripheral services. They're offering free counseling sessions online. Um, and just, just be kind to yourself. If you, if you are in a situation where you do end up going back or you do end up calling that ex mm -hmm. or you do end up thinking, maybe I can't leave right now. Maybe we're on the verge of leaving and this pandemic happened and you have to stay a little more longer. Whatever the decision is, you know, you are brave and you are strong and you are resilient and you will get through this and you will be able to leave. Leaving is not a one-time thing. Leaving is a process. It takes a long time to be able to build your courage to that point. It takes a while to get all that knowledge and awareness. Mm -hmm. I was leaving all through my marriage. It took me 11 years. Yeah. You know, leaving is a process. So every time you go back, don't think you're a failure. That step was crucial in that ultimate time that you're going to be able to leave. So every step you take is a step closer to ultimately leaving, even though you may end up going back in the, in the meantime. Well, I think that is a beautiful message. And you're a warrior and you'll, you will get through this and uh, build the right support system around you. Be kind to yourself, be your champion. And uh, you know, you're not weak. You're, you're beautiful. And strength is not about, and resilience is not about being superwoman and strong all the time. It is about getting back up. So even though you may have gone back 10 times, try one more time. Wow. Oh, Samra, that is a really beautiful message. And I know there are women listening right now who need to hear that. It's okay. You're strong, you're brave, and you can get through this. So and you do not, no one deserves to be abused. It's not your fault. No matter what the abuser tells you, it's your fault and you earned it or you did it or you made him angry. It is never, ever, ever about you. Right. The way someone treats you has everything to do with them and not you. It's That's never right. your fault. Oh. And never, and you know, I know it's hard not to let that get to you, but do whatever you can to build an armor around your brain and not let that garbage through yeah. uh, because that is not your fault and you do not deserve it no matter what. And um, that person is responsible for their own actions. Um, mm -hmm. So don't internalize it. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I know this There's will a help. There's a lot of wonderful people and wonderful support systems out there to help you through this. Yeah. You know, yeah. And soon the world will return to normal. And, uh, and I, and I hopefully think a new normal, which will be a better normal with people so. be more aware and more caring and more leaning into human connections. Yes. And every day we spend in quarantine, we're one day closer to it being over. We're already hearing about things starting to open up. So things are looking up and, uh, and, and that is good news for every single one of us. So thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for your words of encouragement, your story for sharing so openly and honestly. And I will make sure there are resources. You have resources in case you need a reminder. It's Sarma Zafar. Just look her up on, uh, on Google her and you will see lots of information about her. Uh, and then I'll make sure you have lots of tips. So thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you for having me. This was so wonderful. Uh, and uh, thank you for being who you are. You're, you're beautiful. And I, and I just love talking to you. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and connection.